thank you, Dr. Leeper, Professor Leeper, for that beautiful introduction. That was a prophecy. And uh, uh, NCU for that very wonderful welcome. Uh, I am the new dean of the College of Church Leadership. But what you might not realize is the College of Church Leadership is also fairly new. Uh, the College of Church Leadership has only been around, uh, now we're entering our third year of existence. Uh, we were comprised of other colleges that came together, and uh, Doug Graham, Dr. Graham, was our first dean, helping us come together and did a phenomenal job in bringing us together. And Dr. Graham remembers this. One of the biggest discussions we had when we decided to create this college is what do we call ourselves? The College of... Doug Graham? I mean, what do we call ourselves? We didn't know. We had to have a large discussion about this, and we finally settled on the phrase church leadership. We didn't want to call ourselves the College of Ministry because we believe that's true for everyone at North Central University. We don't have uh, the corner on ministry. So we decided to call ourselves church leadership because we wanted to focus on those who are called to lead Christian communities as disciple-generating communities. We are trying to create leaders to lead communities that generate disciples. And our values in the College of Church Leadership reflect this. Our first value, which is up there, is the value of stewardship. Stewardship is simply handling well the responsibility that you've been given. And what we want to do for all of our students is train them on how to best steward their gifts, their training, and their vocation. And the way I like to think of it is this. When you're learning how to steward what God has given you, what you're actually doing is developing your story. Every one of you come here with a story, but you come here because you're beginning a new chapter in your story. And when you graduate from here, you're beginning a new chapter in your story. And what we're trying to teach you is how to develop that story as a steward of the gifts God has given you. So one of our values is stewardship. We're helping you develop your story. Another of our values is excellence. We want to help you learn to do what you've been called to do with excellence and our faculty in the College of Church Leadership are exemplars of this. Every one of our faculty are excellent at something. We have Bob Brenneman. Does anyone know Islam as well as Bob Brenneman? We have Amy Anderson. Who knows the New Testament as well as Amy Anderson? Right? We have exemplars in our college that are here to share with you what they're sharing with you their story. So now we have faculty who have their story. They are excellent at this, and they're helping you develop your story, and it brings us to our third value, and that third value is resilience. Now, resilience is simply the ability to be stretched without breaking. It's the ability to be restored, the ability to survive, and understand what we want to do in the College of Church Leadership is we want to train our students not just in relevance, we want to train them in resilience. Because we're not just preparing you for the first five years of ministry, we're preparing you for the first 50 years of ministry. We want you to survive, we want you to thrive, and the way they do that is this. We focus on those things that the church always needs no matter how the culture changes. 
There are things that are true of the church, whether you're talking about the church in first century Ephesus or the church in 21st century Minneapolis or the underground church in China, there are things that are always true of those communities. And we want you as a student of the College of Church Leadership to learn competencies, skill sets that are based on the needs of the church that never change. So matter what happens as the culture changes, you will always be ready to lead the church. Resilience Because we're helping you not just develop your story, we're helping you further the church's story. By focusing on this, we're helping you further the church's story, and it brings us to our last value. And our last value in the College of Church Leadership is faithfulness. Now, faithfulness is always relative to something else. I could be faithful to my mistress, but that doesn't make me faithful to my wife, right? So when I say faithfulness, what do I mean? I mean faithfulness to the Word of God. Faithfulness to the Word of God, because what we're training you to do is to minister and to lead within the boundaries of God's plan and character. That's why the Word of God is so important. It's that which teaches us the plan and character of God. We're training you to be faithful to the Word of God, which means that everything we do at the College of Church Leadership is meant to fit within the boundaries of God's story, within the boundaries of God's story. Stewardship. Excellence, resilience, faithfulness. These are the values of the College of Church Leadership. And our mission is to serve the church. We're training up leaders for the church, not just the assemblies of God, but the church. To serve the church, to serve our students in the College of Church Leadership, but also to serve the entire North Central community. My sermon today, and I'll tell you, I am going to preach. My sermon today is for all of you. Now, my sermon is on leadership. And one of the problems you might immediately have with me saying I'm going to preach on leadership is the idea that you're not called to be a leader. You might not feel that. I even said to someone recently, I'm going to preach on leadership. And they said, I don't think God's calling me to be a leader. And in one sense, that might be true if you define leadership as simply being in charge of everyone else. Because the truth is, everyone can't be in charge of everyone else. Every army will always have more privates than it has generals. So we can define leadership by authority. So the leader is the person in charge of everyone else. And clearly that can't be true for all of us. But what is true is every Christian in this place is called to eldership in the church. Every Christian here, because you as a believer are called to be a mature believer, and as a mature believer, you always become an elder to somebody else. At some point in your life, you will be the elder in your Christian community, whether you're called to vocational ministry or not, because you're the mature Christian there. We're all called to eldership. So we could also define leadership as influence. Influence, so that a leader is someone who has influence over others, without necessarily being in charge. But I want to bring another word into this, and it's the word responsibility. I want to talk about leadership as responsibility. We're all called to be a leader over whatever we have responsibility for. There's this great passage in Scripture, Jesus telling the story of the talents. And he talks about a rich man who goes away on a journey, and he gives three servants measures of his wealth. He gives them money to take care of. One servant takes the money and he doubles it while his master is gone. The next servant takes the money, he doubles it while his master is gone. The third servant takes the money and he's so afraid of losing it 
that he simply buries it in the ground so he can give it back to the master. And the master says this, I gave you my wealth to do something with while I was gone. The first two servants succeeded, the last servant failed. Two were good stewards, one wasn't. And here's the words of the master. Matthew 25, 21. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in few things. I will put you charge in many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Whatever God gives us to steward is actually determining the kind of responsibility we'll be entrusted with later. And when you're faithful over the little thing, that's directly connected to the great thing you can do for God later. You want to do a great thing for God later? Handle that little thing well now. We're going to talk about leadership in this way, and I want to begin by giving you an example. Uh, I love to think of good examples and bad examples. Of course, in that parable, one servant is a bad example, two servants are good examples. Whenever I think of good examples and bad examples, I always go to this example that comes from a magazine. Anyone ever read as a child highlights? Okay, some of you know highlights, right? Highlights is a magazine published for children since 1948. Typically, if you don't have a subscription, you can find it in every dentist and doctor's office in the country. As a child, that's where I always read highlights. Highlights always had cartoons and games and puzzles trying to teach lessons for children. And one that they had all the time was a cartoon called Goofus and Gallant. And someone really loves Goofus and Gallant. Goofus and Gallant was basically this. There was a child named Goofus who always did the wrong thing in social situations. Goofus would always take the last piece of pie. Goofus would always lie to a friend. Goofus would always throw away his clothes without putting them in the hamper. Gallant was the kid who always did everything right. And so they showed you Goofus. They showed you Gallant. Here's a bad example. Here's a good example. Behind me, you can see Goofus. He's the kid with the bad haircut. Every time you look at this, you always think the same thing. What parent in their right mind would name their child Goofus, right? I mean, they are setting this kid up to fail. But it's the classic good example, bad example. Are you Goofus or are you Gallant? Today, I want to give you some bad examples from First and Second Samuel. First and Second Samuel are books about leaders, and they are books that could be told simply with the example of Goofus and Gallant. There's five main leaders in First and Second Samuel, and they alternate: bad leader, good leader, bad leader, good leader, bad leader, bad leader. The first ones, Eli and his sons, they're Goofus. Then you get to Samuel, good leader, he's gallant. Then you get to Saul, bad leader, he's goofus. Then you get to David, fairly good leader, he's usually gallant. Then you get to Absalom, goofus. Then if you go to the next book, 1 Kings, it begins with Solomon, and the question for every reader is simply this, will Solomon be goofus or will Solomon be gallant? What kind of leader will he be? What I want to talk to you about this morning is I want to talk to you about the bad leaders. I initially entitled this message, How to Be a Bad Leader, and I decided that was way too negative a title, so I changed it to a more cumbersome but positive title, How to Avoid Becoming a Bad Leader. I'm simply going to talk about the three bad leaders, the three goofuses of First and Second Samuel, what made them a bad leader, and how you can avoid being like them. The first set are the sons of Eli. Now, here's what the Bible says about the sons of Eli. It calls them worthless men. In the Hebrew, literally, they were men without value. 
and you think to yourself, why would they be called worthless men? What did they do? And here's the answer. We're given it very quickly in 1 Samuel 2. They abused their power over others. They were men who took sacrifices meant for God as priests, and they put it in their own possession, and they started sleeping with the women who worked in the tabernacle. That is a me too thing right there. They were men who abused their position over others. They abused their power, and they avoided accountability. And in the story, the people of Israel know what's going on because they're not hiding it because there's no mechanism in Israel at the time to get rid of a bad priest. You simply have to let God do it. And eventually in the story, God does. If you want to avoid their example, don't take advantage of your position. Take care of your responsibility. If you want to avoid their example... Don't take advantage of your position. Take care of your responsibility. When you have responsibility over someone as an employer, as a manager, as a counselor, as a pastor, as an advisor, as a healthcare professional, as a dean, treat those people not just as objects of your profession, but treat them as creatures, creations of an almighty God. People are people are people are people. They're not objects. They're not things to be manipulated. They are people. Never take advantage of your position over others. One of the worst elements of American culture is an idea that we sometimes have in the workforce where we see workers as cogs in a greater system who can be replaced, which gives reason to abuse workers because they can be replaced if they quit. That's not treating people as people. It's one of the worst things about our culture. And, of course, it gives rise to other things like the reason for the Me Too movement. Let me tell you, just to be honest, I'm a fan of the Me Too movement because I think anytime you call out abuses of power, that's godly. Don't abuse your position Take care of your responsibility, including those you have responsibility for. Never, ever, as a leader, treat people as a means to an end. Because people are always the end. And let me, can I, can I just say something really blunt? And I don't mean to offend, but I'm going to be blunt. I'm coming at this now from the perspective of a pastor who's been a pastor. I've seen churches where churches saw people who weren't part of the church as the goal and people who worked in the church as the means. And they abused church workers because they wanted to make the church bigger. That is not God's will. Let me say it this way. If you can't do something God's way, it's automatically not God's will. If you can't do something God's way, it's not God's will. People are people are people, and the ones who work with you matter just as much as the ones you're working for. People are people are people. So take care of your responsibility. Number two, the second bad leader is King Saul. In fact, King Saul screwed up so badly as king. Here's what God says about King Saul. I regret, 
I have made Saul king. How badly do you have to screw up for God to say, I have made a mistake? I regret that I made Saul king. What did Saul do? Well, there's a whole list of things, but I'm going to put them together. Three things he did wrong, and then we're going to see how it was actually all one thing. First thing was in 1 Samuel 13, first time he's going into battle with Israel, and it's a big battle. He decides that he can't wait for the prophet to offer the sacrifice before battle, so he offers it himself, which right away is a problem because the thing about being king of Israel is different than being king of any other country because you're actually king, but really God's king. Every king of Israel works for God. They don't work for themselves, meaning every king of Israel can't be everything to the people. I have to wait for the prophet because even the king is accountable to somebody. And when Saul decided to act like he was the prophet rather than just the king, he took away his accountability. And when Samuel shows up and he calls him on it, Samuel's the prophet, you know what Saul does? And this is the first problem. Saul blames everyone else but him. He says, look, the soldiers were getting antsy waiting. You were late showing up. So I had to take this on myself. The problem with Saul is that he wouldn't take responsibility for his mistakes. In fact, it happens again, 1 Samuel 15. Saul is ordered to destroy all the property of an enemy, and the reason for that is this. God is saying you're going to war with this enemy for the count of justice, not because you're trying to get richer. War is about justice, it's not about property. But when Saul stole property from the king he defeated, he made it a war about property, not about justice. And when Samuel called him on this, what does Saul do? He immediately blames someone else. It wasn't me that did it. It was the people that did it. And how can I stop them? I'm just their king. He wouldn't take responsibility. Then finally, God says, I've had it up to here with Saul. I regret I've made him king. I'm going to call David to be king in his place. And the first time Saul realizes that David's becoming more popular than him, the people are starting to sing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands, Saul begins to fight David because he's afraid of being replaced. And here's the problem with Saul. Saul always wanted to take the credit and shift the blame when he should have shared the credit and taken the blame. Let me say that again. Saul always wanted to shift the blame, but take all the credit. David defeated Goliath. Saul didn't. But Saul wanted every song to be about him. He wanted to take the credit, but he wanted to shift the blame. What a good leader does is they share the credit, but they take the blame. Here's the thing. No leader succeeds without the help of those they lead. And our success is always their success. At the same time, when we prepare others to succeed, their success becomes our success. Do you realize that if Saul, after all of his screw-ups, had just been willing to recognize that God had chosen David rather than him, and rather than fighting David, Saul had built David up. Saul had said, yes, David should be the next king. If Saul had prepared the way for David's reign, David's reign would have become Saul's redemption. But instead, he wanted the credit for himself. 
So here's the thing you have to do to avoid becoming Saul. You have to take responsibility for what you control. Take responsibility for what you control. Can I tell you a secret about blame? I don't know if anyone's ever shared this with you. If not, I'm going to share it with you right now. Here's a secret about blame. We are all so interconnected. All of us are so interconnected and interwoven into each other's lives that if you want to find someone else to blame, you can almost always find someone else to blame. Because there is always someone around when you messed up. There was always someone there connected to you while you were doing it. You can always, always find someone else to blame. Just because you find someone to blame doesn't mean they're actually to blame. Because that's how blame works. You can always find someone else to blame. But the truth is, even if we blame other people for our failures, nothing will ever change with those failures until we take responsibility for what we control. Even if we blame other people for our failures, nothing will change with those failures until we take responsibility for what we control. How many know there's this cognitive strategy that's called self-handicapping? And the point of self-handicapping is this. Have you ever decided that you were going to fail before you actually failed and started building reasons for why you were going to fail? It's called self-handicapping. I know I'm not going to succeed at this because of this factor and this factor and this factor, and you start handicapping yourself because what you're doing is you're trying to protect your self-esteem. You're afraid it's not going to work, so you're looking for reasons why it won't work before it doesn't work, so you can say, I knew I was right. But when you self-handicapped, you're not planning for failure. What you're actually doing is you're preparing for failure you're actually helping ensure that you fail. You're bringing yourself there. Don't self-handicapped. Don't prepare or plan for failure. Take responsibility for what you control. Share the blame. I mean, share, yeah, share the credit, but take the blame. Share, that didn't sound right. Share the credit, but take the blame. And then our last example. Our last example of a bad leader is Absalom. It was said when Absalom died, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. In other words, it's good that he's dead. That's what that means. It's good that he's dead. Why would they say that? What did Absalom do? And in one sense, Absalom may be the most tragic part of this story because Absalom was a young man who started off by trying to do the right thing. He was the third son of King David, but he was the most impressive son. He had a sister who was sexually abused. David, the king, did not do justice and protect that sister. He did not punish the man who raped his daughter, so Absalom turned vigilante and he killed the man on his own. But that man turned out to be the crown prince. So Absalom had to flee the kingdom. Flee the kingdom because he was getting justice for his sister. Then when David sends word to him and says, I forgive you, come back to the kingdom, 
Absalom comes back and finds there's other people who see Absalom as an example of someone who's getting the justice no one seems to be getting in Israel. And for two years, Absalom starts speaking justice, justice, justice. If only I was king, I would give you justice. If only I was king, you would get what you deserve. He was the voice for justice in Israel until he decided he could no longer wait to be king. And he rose up against his father, and he died in the end. If you want to avoid Absalom's example, here's the lesson. Don't try to control someone else's responsibility. Don't try to control someone else's responsibility. One of the most important things you have to learn in being a leader is you first have to learn how to be a follower. To be a good leader, you have to learn how to be a good follower. And here's why. If you never learn how to be a follower, you'll never know what it's like for the people who have to follow you. If you never learn how to be a follower, you'll never learn what it's like for the people who have to follow you. It is important to trust God for advancement and not try to control someone else's responsibility. Here's a part of the story of Absalom we sometimes miss that I want to highlight, and it's this. When Absalom kicked his father out of Jerusalem, David had to flee. Absalom raised an army. He sent word throughout Israel, and the word was this. Absalom has been made king. Absalom has become king. And we read this, and we're like, okay, I get what's going on. But here's the element we sometimes miss. In the worship of Israel, you find this repeatedly in the Psalms, the common phrase is this. God has become king. Nowhere in the text of Samuel is it ever announced this way that David has become king because the phrase has become king belongs to God. So the idea that a lot of scholars believe in 2 Samuel is when the word is given to Israel, Absalom has become king, the reader should realize Absalom's not trying to replace David, Absalom's trying to replace God. And here's the lesson for us as leaders. When we take over a responsibility that God entrusted someone else to have, we aren't replacing them. We're actually trying to replace God. I want to do this my way. I don't want to do this God's way. And here's the temptation for us. The temptation is what happens when you think you have a bad leader. Because let me tell you, in the story of 2 Samuel, David doesn't seem like an awfully good leader. David screws up. David does not represent justice. If this was the Me Too movement, David would have been fired. But just because you have a bad leader is no excuse for you to become a bad leader. Just because you have a bad leader, that's no excuse for you to become a bad leader. If you try to take control of something that's supposed to be someone else's responsibility, you're only limiting your chances for success for your own responsibility. Don't let a bad leader excuse you for becoming a bad leader. Don't try to control someone else's responsibility. Now, in talking about these three examples, and talking about how to become a bad leader, how to avoid becoming a bad leader, don't be a goofus, I'm not setting a very high bar. I'm not telling you how to be a good leader. I'm just telling you how to not be a bad one. 
So let me give you one final passage of Scripture, again from Jesus, again from the Gospel of Matthew, on good leadership, and it's this. Jesus says to his disciples, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gives us here an example of bad and good leadership. Bad leaders lorded over others. Good leaders act like servants of others. When you are a leader, that makes you the servant of everyone you lead. Are you acting like a servant? Or are you acting like a Lord? Are you acting like a servant? Or are you acting like a Lord? In fact, some have said this last verse here, 28, may be the mission statement of Jesus. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life for others. And here's the final point. None of us in here get to be king because Jesus is already king. We're only stewards under his authority. So avoid those things that make a bad leader. Take care of your responsibility. Don't take advantage of those you have responsibility for. Take responsibility for what you control. Don't take credit, but take blame. Don't shift blame, but share credit. And don't try to control someone else's responsibility. Learn to be a good follower so you can learn to be a good leader. When we're faithful in few things, God will entrust to us greater things. If you want to find the great thing you can do for God, do the little thing well now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are in charge. We thank you that you are the kind of God who loves us so much that you would send your only son to die for our sins. I thank you that you made Jesus king so that none of us would ever try to be king in his place. Lord, help us to steward well every responsibility you give us under our king, every role of leadership, every way we influence others. Let us do this well for your glory and for the good of the world. Help us to serve and not to act like Lord. We commit ourselves to you for your glory, for the good of others, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Altars are open, otherwise you're dismissed.